It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. This is kind of a hard one for me because I'm a very big fan of Van Morrison's music. Brown Eyed Girl, Moon Dance. Uh, you know, I can recite them all by heart. I think he was a sensational uh, singer and made fabulous albums. But man, he has kind of gone off the rails. I'm looking at a piece here in Yahoo. He's got a new double album out. I guess you still call them albums, right? With such tunes as Why Are You on Facebook and Stop Bitching, Do Something. So Variety published a list of the 10 craziest lyrics on this record. The Jerusalem Post rounded up all the claims of anti-Semitism implied in his song They Own the Media. Yet They Own the Media, not that subtle a title. And, and this piece kind of recounts his career and how successful he was and then said he devolved into a boozy uncle type cranking out boilerplate blues LPs while leaning on his earlier legacy to fill concert halls. Well, there are a lot of aging rockers who lean on their legacy to fill concert halls, at least when you could have concerts. And I hope we're going to have concerts back very soon. But if you go back to last year, it's when Van Morrison published this screed on his website that he wanted to get his band up and running. Uh, We need to be playing at full capacity audiences. And I understand the frustration of any performer who felt sidelined by this awful pandemic. But then he went on to question the science. He said, I call my fellow singers, musicians, writers, producers, promoters, and others in the industry to fight with me on this. Come forward, stand up, fight the pseudoscience, and speak up. And then last fall, he put out some songs, one of them called No More Lockdown. He was singing about making up crooked facts, calling the perpetrators fascist bullies, and the Northern Ireland health minister actually took him on, saying the lyrics were dangerous. He's become a leader of the tinfoil hat brigade. So a very strange turn in the career of 75-year-old Van Morrison. Now, what about the whole uh, Kentucky Derby mess? So now you have the horse that was found to have tested positive for banned drugs, Medina Spirit, has for some reason been cleared to run in the Preakness. Now, I guess my first reaction to that was, well, wait a second, you fail a drug test and then you sort of get rewarded by being in the next leg of the Triple Crown? On the other hand, uh, I guess it's being appealed, contested, and so if it were to turn out that the horse was innocent, really meaning the trainer, Bob Baffert, uh, was innocent, um, then why should Medina Spirit be denied a chance to compete again? So Baffert has been out there doing interviews and complaining that Uh, He's being treated unfairly. He now says that the horse, before the derby, developed something called dermatitis. Uh, Had him checked out. My veterinarian recommended the use of an antifungal ointment called Automax. This contains um, this substance called betamethasone, and that's one of the banned substances. So he's saying, I don't know if that was it. It could be it. But then I come to this sentence In the Louisville Courier-Journal, I've told you some of this, but not all of this. This is the fifth time a horse trained by Baffert has failed a drug test in the last 12 months. I mean, I see a screaming red siren there. And the 31st time in his entire career. Doesn't that sound like uh, he's a serial offender? I'm not saying every single incident is his fault. You'd have to look into the details, but uh, there's something that's just not adding up here. That's how I feel about it. All right, a lot of cover here. So number one, Liz Cheney. This is Liz Cheney Day. Uh, Liz Cheney has become the leader of a new movement. Let's call it Lizism. 
Uh, last night, as you may have heard, she gave a pretty fiery speech on the House floor, knowing that today is the day that a majority of her Republican colleagues will vote to boot her out of the leadership. She will give up her number three position in the House. Uh, and clearly, she's not going down without a fight, by which I mean uh, the congresswoman from Wyoming is not arguing against this. She understands it's going to happen. She's an experienced politician. She grew up around politics, obviously the daughter of a former vice president. But she is turning what ordinarily would be a leadership fight. There's been a number of people on the Democratic and Republican side who've been kicked out of these number two and number three positions, and sometimes they come back into the leadership, and sometimes they don't. Uh, but never with this level of huge national attention, political warfare, and all of that. So she understands what's happening today. Uh, at the same time, she is trying to position herself as, I, I guess I'll just say it, the leader of a movement opposed to Donald Trump, uh, Donald Trump's hold on the party, and Donald Trump's contention that the 2020 election was rigged. So on the floor, uh, here's what Cheney said. This is not about policy. This is not about partisanship. This is about our duty as Americans. Remaining silent and ignoring the lie emboldens the liar. I will not participate in that. I will not sit back and watch in silence while others lead our party down a path that abandons the rule of law and joins the former president's crusade to undermine our democracy. Um, now, interestingly, almost every member of the Republican Party in the House as soon as she was going to the stand up to speak, they they went out. They left the chamber. They hightailed it out of there. I think there was one Republican member who listened to her speak, which is insulting. You know, you may completely disagree with every single thing that Liz Cheney has to say, but she's a longtime friend and colleague of yours, and everybody just bolts out of there like she's a non-person. I don't know. I found that kind of insulting. Maybe it's par for the course on Capitol Hill. What I find interesting here is uh, a pretty well-reported piece based on allies of Cheney in the Washington Post that talks about how she will now aim to become an even more influential political figure capable of weakening Trump's hold on the party and continuing to push for his purge. Well, first I got to say, good luck with that, because Donald Trump is, whether you like him, whether you don't like him, whether you accept what he says about the stolen election, for which there is no proof, which he's never been able to prove, either in any of the lawsuits that were filed or to the satisfaction of his own Justice Department. But again, whether you're a fan of the 45th president or not, he is the most influential person in the Republican Party today. Liz Cheney, as a result of this action, uh, not only loses a whole lot of clout, there's a serious question about whether she can win re-election in Wyoming next year. Now, that's a zillion eons from now, the way politics goes. Uh, but this Washington Post uh, piece says that she's, uh, uh, she and her team are drafting plans for increased travel and media appearances, because she hasn't given an interview in some time, meant to drive home her case that Trump is unfit for a role of the Republican Party or as the nation's leader, were he to run in 2024. This is all based on unnamed sources. Uh, continuing, Cheney has told allies she realizes the effort could take years and cost her donors and even her job. So basically, here you have Elizabeth Cheney saying, I don't care what the price I have to pay is. 
I'm, I'm giving up. I have no choice. I'm being kicked out of the leadership. I know I'm making my re-election uh, back in Wyoming more complicated. And nevertheless, I feel so strongly about what I, you know, what she's calling and others are calling and the media are calling the big lie, the idea that the election was stolen from Donald Trump last year, that she's going to continue to speak out. Now, Bill Kristol, um, former aide in the George H.W. Bush White House, uh, former uh, publisher of the Weekly Standard, and a major never-Trumper, a major uh, anti-Trump voice, is quoted in this piece as saying, she is, I think, the leader of the non-Trump Republicans, and I don't know how big that group is. Um, it could be 10 to 15% of the party, though, and that is a lot of people. It has a fair number of donors, and it has the potential to grow. So Crystal, at least, is giving his blessing to Cheney's effort to um, start a revolt, I guess you would say, within the Republican Party. Now, Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader, uh, wrote a letter to his colleagues on Monday uh, saying that every day they spend relitigating the past is one less day we have to seize the future. So, you know, McCarthy's position, McConnell's position is they don't want to talk about it. It's done. We had the violence on January 6th. We need to move on. We need to move on. We need to move on. But as I have observed before, while you can certainly fault Liz Cheney for not moving on, while you can certainly fault Liz Cheney for not representing the views of a majority of her conference as the House Republican Conference chair, uh, and therefore they do have a right to say, you know, you're out of step with your colleagues, and therefore we're kicking you out of the leadership. Uh, while Liz Cheney um, is certainly stubborn, well, that's an interesting word. Uh, it's a word you apply to somebody whose position you don't agree with. Why doesn't she just get with the program? But if somebody you agree with is uh, being, quote, stubborn, then they're sticking to principles. I mean, you know, she's sacrificing a lot to stand up and say to her own party, this is uh, a suicide mission for the GOP if we continue to argue, uh, despite the fact of uh, any uh, solid evidence, that the election was stolen from us rather than moving on and trying to win in 2024. Uh, so uh, it also seems like you know, she doesn't really have, I mean, Mitt Romney has said nice things about her. He also voted uh, to convict Donald Trump. Liz Cheney obviously voted to impeach him in the second impeachment effort. So at the same time, there's now a new group of about 120 activists. These are former elected or appointed Republicans that's going to be launched tomorrow. And it will endorse and fundraise for candidates. Now, you can't exactly say this group has big names. The leader is Evan McMullen. Evan McMullen is a former intelligence officer who ran a kind of a gadfly pres uh, campaign for president in 2016 as an independent. He was a national re review writer, a very smart guy. But, you know, when you run for president and you've got nobody behind you, that kind of makes you a bit of a fringe character. The other person in this effort is Miles Taylor. Now, Miles Taylor, although you didn't, we didn't know his name at that point, uh, got a lot of notoriety when he published the anonymous piece in the New York Times. And the Times kind of hyped him as a senior Trump administration official. In fact, he was the chief of staff at Homeland Security under Trump and later came out, wrote a book, and so forth. Uh, now, who will be else will be in this group? Um, according to the New York Times, uh, this will be include members of people who were members of Congress, governors, ambassadors, cabinet secretaries, 
Uh, Taylor wouldn't say who it is. Reuters reported that former Governor Tom Ridge of Pennsylvania, former Homeland Security Secretary, and Christy Whitman of New Jersey, former EPA Administrator, will sign a letter for this new group, as well as former Transportation Secretary Mary Peters, you probably barely remember who she is, former Congressman Charlie Dent, former Virginia Congresswoman Barbara Comstock, uh, former Congressman Mickey Edwards of Oklahoma. So, you know, there's some people who have a certain amount of name recognition, but, you know, is this group going to be successful in raising money, endorsing candidates, and going up against the cloud of Donald Trump? I would say that's a long shot. Uh, Trump put out a couple of statements so far today. Uh, one last night, one today on this Cheney. She has no personality or anything good having to do with the politics of our country. She is a talking point Democrat for Demo- she's a talking point for Democrats, whether that means the border, the gas lines, inflation, or destroying our economy. She is a warmonger whose family stupidly pushed us into the never-ending Middle East disaster, draining our wealth and depleting our great military, the worst decision in our country's history. I look forward to soon watching her as a paid contributor on CNN or MSDNC. Well, you'll have to wait a while, uh, Mr. President, because while she's a sitting member of Congress uh, through next year, she can't be a paid contributor on a cable news network. Um, Let's see. Um, So Jason Miller, who is close to Donald Trump and has been his spokesman, uh, is quoted in this uh, post piece as saying that uh, there is no place in the Republican Party for permanent warmongers who believe we should be world cops. Liz Cheney will now be relegated to the ash heap of history, having the same lack of influence as other military-industrial complex has-beens like John Bolton. Could I pause here and remind everybody that President Trump appointed John Bolton as his White House National Security Advisor, this, in, which, of course, eventually led to his departure, his resignation slash firing, uh, the tell-all book, um, but, you know, it's fine to bash them now, but, you know, who was responsible for John Bolton being a member of the White House staff? All right, let's move on to number two. Biden is trying to do some bipartisanship today. He will have his first meeting with the big four leadership. Kevin McCarthy, who complained to me a few weeks ago that he hadn't even talked to President Biden. Mitch McConnell, as well as Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, will be at the White House to see if there's any uh, common ground for an infrastructure compromise. I'm not optimistic on that, but at least they're getting together. Uh, Politico has a piece saying that while Biden is doing that, he's also got a plan B, trying to keep the two most moderate Democrats on board. Those are Joe Manchin, of course, and Kirsten Sinema, uh, in case the GOP jumps ship. So apparently uh, what happened is, so Biden has a two-part strategy. He wants to show by meeting with McConnell, by meeting with McCarthy, by at least trying to fashion some kind of compromise, even though that the Republican Party bid is $600 billion and the Biden bid is two, world, uh, two bills worth $4 trillion. That look like this, it looks like there's a lot of distance there. But if he can't get any compromise with Republicans, he wants to convince Manchin and Cinema that he did the best he could. They're not really serious. Uh, one person with knowledge of the White House strategy telling Politico, you're giving them complete buy-in. They're saying you have complete ownership of this process. So the idea is if the Republicans walk away or Biden walks away or they just can't get it done, then perhaps Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema could be convinced to stick with the Democratic position, having seen that there was a real effort 
um, to compromise with the Republicans. And that means, you know, another Democrat-only bill or two bills that move through on a strictly party-line vote known as reconciliation. Uh, according to people briefed on the matter, the strategy is being driven by Ron Klain, who internalized many of the lessons of the Obama years uh, when he worked in the Obama White House in 2009 when he worked for Joe Biden. The White House started health care negotiations with the GOP, wasted a lot of months, ultimately had to go it alone, spent a lot of time in the 11th hour scrambling to get enough Democratic votes to push this through, which obviously ultimately happened. This time, the Biden White House appears eager to get the moderate lawmaker buy-in up front. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, let's go on to number three, because talking about congressional strategy uh, can often be as exciting as watching paint dry. Uh, Number three, uh, the vaccinations. I must say, whether you agree or don't agree, the New York Times has had just very comprehensive coverage on this. I was very praiseworthy yesterday, and this had a lot of impact on cable news yesterday. The David Leonhardt piece saying that the CDC is being misleading, ultra-cautious, and still having the official guidance be that you'll have, if you're vaccinated and you're not wearing a mask and you're just walking around outside, you get a 10% chance of being affected. And that's not true. It's actually closer to 1%, according to that piece, and perhaps 0.1%. Well, today, the Times has another story, not about the vaccine hesitant, because that's dominated the news. Why won't these people, these conservatives and these Republicans, uh, they, they're not willing to do what's good for the country and all that. But there's another group that hasn't gotten enough attention. And the Times went out and interviewed people in this group. And they're not vaccine hesitant. They're, they're people who want to get a vaccine, but they just either aren't sure how to get it or they don't have time. And there's some fascinating details in here. So it starts off by talking to some guy who says, you know, he's a contractor. He doesn't know what hours he's going to be working, how long he's going to be on the job. He says, if, you know, if this could just come to my house like a Domino's pizza, I'd do it tomorrow. And several other people saying the same thing. This is an overlooked but sizable group whose reasons are not that they're skeptical about the COVID-19 vaccine. According to the census, some 30 million American adults are open to getting a COVID vaccine but haven't managed to actually do it. That's more than the 28 million who say they probably won't get vaccinated because they have doubts about that. So President Biden had talked about that, saying that uh, there are just all these people who are just not sure how to get it, where they want to go. And so they're talking about more mobile clinics and all that. So these are the vaccine amenable. That's the phrase the Times tries to coin. They are, for the most part, and this is where it gets interesting, America's working class. They're contending with jobs and family obligations that make for scarce discretionary time. They don't have time to go down to a mass fax center and wait around for hours or, or, or that kind of thing. And they're not, you know, they're not like people who are at home sitting on their computers seeing where they can get vaccinated. About half of them live in households with incomes of less than 50000 a year. Another 30% have annual household incomes of fifty to 100,000 a year, according to an analysis by an epidemiologist at Harvard. 81% of these people do not have a college degree. Some have health issues or disabilities or face language barriers that can, get, that can make getting inoculated seem daunting. Others don't have a regular doctor. Some are socially isolated. So you're getting a clearer picture now. They do want to get vaccinated. They don't, they either don't have time 
They don't have um, an easy way of doing it. They have, they're busy with family and kids and trying to put food on the table. They are a lower-income people. And this statistic tells it all. 93% of adults and households earning 150000 199000 a year have been vaccinated as of about 10 days ago. Only 76% of those learning, learning less than twenty-five k a year have gotten at least one shot. Well, it's encouraging that it's 76%, but it could be much higher. And so the focus for the Biden administration, for the media, I really think should be not on necessarily convincing all these people who are wary, but helping people who do kind of sort of want to get it, but don't quite know how. Again, they may be ill. They may be socially isolated. They may have language issues, and they may just be too busy working odd jobs and trying to hold their families together. We have to make it easier for them. We have to bring it into their neighborhoods. We have to get the word out to them. Maybe even have to go door to door because it doesn't just help them. Of course it helps them, but it helps their families. It helps the people they work with, and it helps America. I mean, we can possibly get the overall vaccination rate up to maybe 75% from the roughly 56% where it is now. We could beat this thing. I mean, COVID virus could become just a sort of an annoyance. But if we fail to reach that level, then it's going to come back year after year after year. And so the stakes are really high. All right, number four, uh, the NRA has lost its bankruptcy case. Federal judge yesterday throwing out the National Rifle Association's uh, bankruptcy protection litigation. And this judge was pretty tough. This judge said, that the, that the NRA would f- had filed this case in a bad faith attempt to fend off a lawsuit by the New York Attorney General. So what happens is the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, Democrat, filed a far-reaching civil suit against the NRA. This is back last summer. And, and get, accusing top officials, including the NRA Chief Wayne LaPierre, of fraud, of self-dealing. Uh, LaPierre says this is a, act, a political act to destroy the organization. So he goes to Texas and says, oh, you know what, we're, we're running out of money, we're going to file for bankruptcy, as a way to protect the organization from the New York Attorney General. Uh, and she says, Letitia James says, the NRA does not get to dictate when and where it will be held accountable. This decision sends a loud and clear message that no one is above the law, not even one of the most powerful lobbying organizations in the country. LaPierre put out a kind of a bland statement saying, uh, Although we are disappointed in some aspects of the decision, there is no change in the overall direction of our association or its Second Amendment advocacy. Uh, The judge in this case said lingering issues of secrecy and a lack of transparency in the management of the nonprofit were factored into the ruling. The judge was troubled by the surreptitious manner in which Mr. LaPierre obtained and exercised authority to file for bankruptcy for the NRA not telling the majority of the board of directors, the chief financial officer, or the general counsel. Well, of course that doesn't smell right. Uh, anyway, the federal judge tossing this out yesterday, and so now I guess it'll have to be fought out in New York. Number five, uh, Carol Lennig of the Washington Post. She's a reporter who won a Pulitzer Prize in 2015 for her reporting on security failures at the Secret Service, is now coming out with next week a book on the Secret Service. It's called Zero Fail, The Rise and Fall of the Secret Service. 
uh, and the Guardian obtained an advanced copy. And the most interesting thing, according to the Guardian, has to do with whether the question of whether, according to this book, Trump family members, quote, got inappropriately and perhaps dangerously close, end quote, to the agents protecting them while Donald Trump was president. So Carol Lennox writes that Vanessa Trump, who is the wife of Donald Trump Jr., was the wife of Donald Trump Jr. before they split up, started dating one of the agents who had been assigned to her family. She filed for an uncontested divorce in March of 2018. Lennox reports that the agent involved did not face disciplinary action as neither he nor the agency were the official guardians of Vanessa Trump at that point. Now, there's another case. She writes that Tiffany Trump, the former president's daughter with uh, Marla Maples, broke up with a boyfriend and began spending an unusual amount of time alone with a Secret Service agent assigned to her detail. So Secret Service leaders, according to this book, became concerned at how close Tiffany appeared to be getting to the tall, dark, and handsome agent. Both Tiffany Trump and the agent said nothing untoward was happening. Uh, Lennon includes that side in her book. She said the nature of the agent's job, or this is their take on it, meant spending a lot of time alone with the woman he was charged with protecting. The agent was subsequently reassigned. She also says it's not clear if President Trump knew what the Secret Service personnel were saying about his daughter and his daughter-in-law. But here's a kicker, and I just love this, and it is just so Donald. Uh, according to Carol Lenning, the president did repeatedly seek to remove Secret Service staff members guarding the family, not because of any involvement or potential involvement or rumored involvement uh, with his daughter Tiffany or with the uh, wife and then former wife of his son Donald Jr. Nope. The problem was he deemed them to be too overweight or too short for the job. Quote, I want these fat guys off my detail, Trump is reported to have said, possibly confusing office space personnel with active agents. How are they going to protect me and my family if they can't run down the street? Now, Donald Trump, who, of course, is not exactly a paragon of physical fitness, but, you know, we don't elect him to run marathons, in fairness. Uh, you know, lots of people who have been out of shape have served as President of the United States, including most notably William Howard Taft. But he's privately griping, I want these fat guys off the detail, if, if indeed there were fat Secret Service agents on the detail, because he didn't think they were in good enough shape to protect him. Now, I think there were certain... Um, physical requirements you have to be in order to be a Secret Service agent, not unlike being a police officer. And so there might have been some confusion with people who are, you know, you can work for the Secret Service agent in an administrative capacity, and I guess in that sense it doesn't matter how tall or short or heavy or, or skinny you are. Uh, so I don't know whether there's anything to the president's complaint or not, but I like, I want these fat guys off my detail. Um, you know, if you uh, have a podcast and you talk about politics, this is a pretty interesting time. Who would have thought six months ago, who would have thought it when Donald Trump lost this election, that six months later, with President Biden in office for well over 100 days, 
Um, you know, I, I think it wasn't hard to predict that Donald Trump was going to remain a force in the Republican Party, that he still had, you know, 75 people, 75 million people voted for him. I have seen polls saying he's not as popular as he once was with the GOP, but we're talking here about going from 93% to something like 78%. That's still pretty damn popular. But who would have thought we'd be talking about whether or not the election was stolen, given that we this was been fully litigated in during the transition when, remember, the Trump White House wouldn't cooperate for several weeks with the incoming Biden administration. Who would have thought we'd still be talking about whether sitting Republicans, members, members of Congress, would be embracing the notion that the election was stolen or at least remaining silent on the notion that the election was rigged because they don't want to cross the former president who simply by endorsing an opponent, or recruiting an opponent to primary them, uh, simply by speaking out against them, and this goes well beyond Liz Cheney, um, could end their political careers. Who would have thought we'd be in that situation? And you even have President Biden getting involved because it obviously complicates his relationship with the GOP. I mean, he's been very careful to stay out of it. That one time when he was asked by a reporter, Biden did say, look, I, I want to have, I believe in the two-party system. I think there should be a strong and vibrant Republican Party. I think the Republican Party has to make up its mind what it's going to be. Um, you can't exaggerate the impact this is having now. I don't know, a month from now, are we still going to be talking about Liz Cheney? Is she going to have a high a profile as she does right now when she is in the process of being booted out of her House leadership post? Is she going to be able to raise money? Is she going to be a fixture on CNN and MSNBC? Not for money, but as a way of getting her message out. Will she become the leader of the anti-Trump resistance? And is she a skilled enough politician to be a leader of the anti-Trump resistance? Because, you know, she, she sort of doesn't have a home now. Clearly, she's not going to be comfortable in Donald Trump's Republican Party. But then you have all of these other liberals, Democrats, left-leaning media types who are like, yeah, Liz, go, you are our heroine for standing up to Trump. But a lot of them don't like her policy positions. They didn't like when she worked for the State Department in the um, Bush administration. They didn't like her dad when he was the vice president uh, and, and helping to bring about the Iraq war. They don't like the forever wars. She's too hawkish for them. So it kind of reminds me of other people who broke with the Trump Republican Party but aren't popular enough with the left because the people on the left have long memories on the policy side and you kind of come politically homeless. So I have no idea what's going to happen. I do give her credit for standing up for the principles that she believes in. Um, but whether or not they're this movement and these former Republicans, I don't know. It's very hard to take on a former president who is as popular as Donald Trump is, but also as polarizing as Donald Trump is, um, certainly in the country at large, less so in the GOP, but clearly there is a significant faction, it may be a small faction within the GOP, that thinks that Donald Trump and Trumpism is leading the Republican Party and the conservative movement down the wrong path. With that, I thank you for listening. You can get us on Google Podcasts. You can get us on Apple iTunes. You can get us on Amazon Music or Spotify or on your Amazon device. Stay safe. Have a great day. See you tomorrow with more Buzz News.
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. Subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.